Hi, my name is Mary. Throughout this series, we will read each psalm as a call and response. If you are able, please stand as we recite Psalm 22. I will read the lines marked reader, you will read the lines marked people, and we will read the lines marked all together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet you, the praise of Israel, are enthroned in holiness. To you they cried and were saved. But I am a worm and not a human. All who see me mock at me. He has committed his cause to the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for the Lord delights in him. Upon you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. I am poured out like water. My heart is like wax. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Indeed, dogs surround me. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. For dominion belongs to the Lord, who rules over the nations. All who go down to the dust shall, do, shall bow before the Lord, and I shall live for God. Each generation shall tell of the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The word of the Lord. If you would just remain, remain standing just for a moment. And let's just wait in just a little bit of silence here for a few seconds. Father, we are still before your word, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would open up our eyes, and open up our ears, open up our hearts, that we would be ready to receive what you're saying to us. We'd be ready to embrace what you're doing in us. We pray these things in Christ's name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, right off the bat with that reading, you know that we're in for a ride this morning. Psalm 22 is not uh, known for its cheerfulness. It's known for the ways that it puts us in touch with the places and the pain of life that we would maybe rather ignore. 
All throughout the series, and we began this series three weeks ago, and we've called it Psalms, the language of our faith. And all through the series, we've been talking about how the Psalms are a way of answering God. And so the Psalms are collected together in five books to correspond to the five books of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's a way of saying, if God speaks through the Torah, then the Psalms are how we answer, or how we reply. But not only do they kind of serve as a sort of language school for interacting and communing with God, but they actually kind of jostle loose inside our hearts the things that have gotten stuck down in there that we haven't been able to express. See, over the course of life, I think what happens is it's a little bit, our soul becomes like this canister where little bits get kind of stuck along the edges and we try to rinse it out and we try to say stuff and we try to, you know, express what's in our hearts. But every once in a while, the stuff that's really grimy gets stuck to the edges and we don't know how to give voice to that and the psalms are like a way of jarring that loose and saying no 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 no, that too say that part too no i don't want to say that but no say that part too but it's really gross and it's sticky this is like leftover food stuck to the inside of the garbage disposal how's that for a visual you know and Psalm 22 kind of jars that loose. In fact, if you're reading the psalm, Psalm 1 starts out, it's wisdom psalm, sets the two paths before us. Psalm 2 reminds us that we're living under God's reign in the world. And then as you keep reading, some of the psalms are pretty happy. There's some thanksgiving ones. There's some petitions saying, okay, Lord, please do this. Please do that. But our first kind of hint of darkness, if, you're listening, if there was a movie score playing along this whole book of psalms, by Psalm 10, it's really turned ominous. And Psalm 10 says, why are you so far from me? The opening note is melancholy. And then you get a little bit of an uplift in 11 and 12, and then 13 gets a little bit darker still. It says, how long will you forget me forever? Not only are you far, but now I feel forgotten. And so by the time we get to 22, it's full-blown minor key now. It's full-on darkness because now the psalmist says, uh, it's not just that I feel like you're far away and it's not just that I feel like you've forgotten me, but actually, I'm just going to say it, you've forsaken me. And Psalm 22 actually sits in, in more or less two halves. The first 21 verses are this lament and then 22 to 31, kind of the last eight or nine verses or so, bring up a little bit of the hope. And so this morning, we're going to talk about lament and hope. And how the two things sit together, lament and hope. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 22 and read, listen to this opening verse with me. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Now, very often when we think of a prayer like this, one of the reasons why we never would want to say this to God is we feel like this would be evidence that we've lost our faith. Surely this is a prayer that is proof that I've lost my faith in God. And so we don't want to say it. Oh, how can I say it? Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, isn't that what atheists pray right before they turn away? I mean, this has got to be, you can't say this. But I want you to point out something to you. The opening word of the psalm is not the word El, which just means God. It's Eli, which means my God. The opening word of the psalm is not God. And listen, Westerners, you know, we're, we've been influenced by the Enlightenment rationalism. And so we sort of think God is somewhere up there and we're all down here. And so sometimes people will joke around. They'll say, you know, the man upstairs. And they're talking about God. And like we have to deal with our affairs. And us, us humans have to muddle along. But, you know, the man upstairs. And so when we hear a prayer like this, instantly in our minds, we skip over the word my and we just say God. God, the concept. God, the philosophical notion of a unmoved mover. God, the first cause of the universe. God, this sort of nebulous force or being way up out there. But that's not how the psalmist talks. He's not addressing a vague being in the cosmos. He's not talking about some philosophical notion of a, be a deity that's up high. He's not talking to the man upstairs. He says, my God, my God. And right off the bat, we understand that lament is not evidence that we've lost faith in God. In fact, lament is proof 
of our relationship with God. Lament is proof of our relationship with God. It says, I have a God who made a promise to me. And on the basis of that promise, I'm going to go ahead and take my complaints to him. I'm going to lament because I have a God. I am not alone. Last week we talked about Psalm 23, and we said we're not alone in the universe. We have a shepherd. We have a God who's watching over us. And so Psalm 22 says, okay, well, let's see it then. Come on, God. Where are you? In fact, you might even say that Psalm 22 and all of the other laments in the book of Psalms argue with God on the basis of Psalm 1. You remember how Psalm 1 opens and it says, look, if you would not walk with these people and not stand in this path and sit in that seat, but if you'd meditate on the word of God, you'll be like a tree planted by the stream. Your leaves will never wither. You'll bear fruit. And the psalmist is like, yeah, I don't see it. I mean, think about that. For the way that Psalm 1 starts with its rosy picture of a stream and fruit and green leaves, think how many times, how many other times the psalms talk about deserts deserts. I mean, we'll get to Psalm 63. Oh God, my God, I seek for you in a dry and weary land. In other words, what's all the stream talk? Where is that? I don't see it. And so Psalm 22 is not a random complainer. It's the personal lament complaint of a lover who's been made a promise and is saying, you made a covenant with me. What happened? It's that intimate complaint. Lament is actually proof of the relationship. And so this morning, to kind of help us enter into this covenant Jewish context of lament, I've invited a friend to join me up here this morning. Uh, I got to meet Rabbi Joe a, co- a couple years ago, I think it was, and we did an event at UCCS from their Center of Religious Diversity, and we were on a panel together about, about uh, faith and violence, and we, naturally we became friends after that panel. And, uh, and then I think it was that Advent season shortly after that, he uh, helped me study an Isaiah text. Now, uh, Joe is Jewish. He's not a Christian. He's not Messianic, but he's, uh, he's, he's, he's known so many friends over the years that he knows how to translate and kind of talk and relate, and that's one of the reasons why we've become friends. Uh, his wife served as a chaplain in the Air Force, and so uh, she would lead uh, the, the gathering that would, that would uh, um, take place at the chapel at the Air Force Academy on Friday nights, and Joe would be the one to lead the study and to teach and to open up the scriptures. And so once our family and our meal group went, and we listened uh, to Joe, and I can tell you, having listened to Joe speak, the, the number one challenge this morning is keeping it succinct, so, uh, <laughs> which is also why we became friends, you know. Um, but please welcome up my friend, Rabbi Joe. Evan will give you the microphone here. Bless you, brother. There you go. Shalom. Shalom. So just for the record, we didn't fight after that religion and violence No, no, course. we didn't. No, we had the most in common. <laughs> Big surprise. Um, Joe, I, I wanted you to talk just for a minute about the place of lament in Judaism. What does that look like? Well, thank you. And before we begin, shalom again, and shalom to you. Thank you. Thank you for this beautiful opportunity to be here. It is to be under one roof in a house of God with people of different faith is the ideal and I think God is smiling today. We have much to learn from each other, and I'm grateful to be here. And I appreciate, actually, that you've done it twice this morning, the idea of having moments of silence. Because very often, when I give a teaching, I begin with a quote. It's a favorite quote of mine, which says, learn to be quiet enough to hear the genuine within yourself so that you can hear the genuine within the other. And then my extension of that quote is so we can hear the genuine within the universe. Because very often the struggles of life or the trials of life or just the din of life makes it very difficult to engage and to hear the genuine and the enduring. So take those moments that are here and take them to your house and have moments of silence so that you can hear that beautifully translated phrase that is probably the worst translation but the best actual 
understanding of the word, that still small voice. It's not a great translation, it's not a criticism, but it, it, it more accurately captures the essence than any translation. It's just the wording is a little bit strange in the Hebrew. And so listen to that still small voice by stopping and making a practice of silence so you can hear that holy call of your soul and the call of the divine. Amen. So as far as lament, and thank you for introducing me to your community with such a joyful topic. Appreciate that. <laughs> it's his fault, not mine. You can all say l'chaim, yeah? <laughs> the idea of lament, the place of lament is your question in Judaism. So I thought I would reframe that question, broaden it slightly, to say not what is the place of lament in Judaism, but what is the place of lament in life? in life because life is, in part, a lament. And how does Judaism guide us to engage, and that's the key word, to engage with this lament that we so often avoid like the plague, and for good reason. You know, there's a statement by a Jewish thinker who he spoke about nature and he said, if nature were able to speak, it would immediately begin with lament. And the truth in that is that if you look across life, just across the spectrum of life, not human, but all life, there is so much sorrow and suffering. The question is, how do we face that? How do we engage with that? And how do we not become overcome? How do we not sink yeah. into depression as a result of the lament. And what Judaism, I think, helps us understand, because history, every tradition brings something very rich to the table. One thing that Judaism brings as far as lament is a deep understanding. And we have, again, this, this chronic reaction when we face lament to avoid it. Mm. But our Bible, our Bible in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament has a book called Lamentations in English. And it's there because we have to learn how to encounter lament. The Hebrew word for lament is kina. Technically, the Hebrew Bible doesn't have that as its title. It has a, an even more lamentable title than lament or lamentations, but another topic for another time. The idea of lament in the Hebrew Bible forces us to do something we are so almost inherently reluctant to do, which is face the lament. It's there for a reason because it's there to guide us and to ultimately help us achieve something we can't do. But that's the natural reaction to lament. We want to in some way redeem the darkness of lament and find that light, find that holy spark in the redemption, rather than sit there with the darkness of lament. And I encourage you, as painful as it is, the Hebrew Bible is teaching us something very profound about lament, and that's this. The word has a few distinct meanings. One of them is a place. The word for lament is also a place. And what that means, it's in the book of Joshua, chapter 15, it's a stop along the way. And what that means by expressing it this way, it's a place of lament, is that we have to make sure we stop mm. in that place mm. of lament mm. to encounter it, to engage it, to, as I say often, to fearlessly and tearfully and prayerfully and hopefully and communally encounter and receive that lament. But it's other meaning, it's other meaning that tells you the power of lament is it's also related, essentially related in Hebrew to the word for a spear. It's telling you the power of lament, its destructive power and its destructive force. And it's real. But it is a place, it's not an end. It's a place along the path that we must stop, we must engage with, and we must encounter. We'll get through 
after. We'll worry about how to cross over or go through after, but don't bypass. Don't look to short circuit your lament. Allow that spear, allow that place to permeate your life mm. and your mind, because as we'll see when we move out of lament, which I don't want to do right now, we will see that there is something as painful as it is, it's necessary. So helpful. Uh, look at verse 3. Let's look at the psalm together, Job. Verse 3 through 5, follow along everyone on the screens. It says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. If you're, if you're reading this in, in your own Bible and you can underline it or highlight it, look at how many times God is addressed directly and personally. Yet you, in you, to you, in you. There's something about the way that the psalmist laments that makes him not only accept the place of suffering and accept the pain, the spear that pierces, but that also allows, he allows it to turn him toward the Lord, to turn him or herself toward the Lord. And so there's a sense in which lament is also a form of praise. And here it is in the collection of a book of songs called Psalms, but in the Hebrew called Tehillah, a book of praise. And how is it that laments can be a form of praise? So I want to offer a, a, a little metaphor and then I want you to reflect on the praise and the deeper hallelujah in a, in a moment. But have you ever had a, a customer service call that was frustrating to you? I mean, I mean Comcast maybe? Um, <laughs> and, and you're just on hold and you're like, I am not getting anywhere, you know? And then finally you say, excuse me, can I please speak to your, to your manager? I need to, talk, I need to go up the chain. Okay, now here's the thing. When you go up, taking your complaint up the chain of command is an implicit way of saying that that person has the power. When you take your complaint to God, the reason it's a form of praise is because you're, you're implicitly saying a couple of things. Number one, you're saying you're the sovereign. You run this place. There is no higher chain of command. No, no, I can't take it to anybody higher. I'm going up the chain all the way. It's you. You run the place. You're sovereign. Secondly, you're saying, you're good. I assume that you care about my complaint, right? And, and thirdly, you're saying, you're loving. You care about me, right? So lament itself becomes a form of praise, even though we don't want it to fit in our normal picture of what a song of praise is like. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful insight. And to go is the... Not there. <laughs> Sorry, what do you need? It's there. The verse, yeah. or do you need? Yeah. Yeah, the verse. So what, what's in, interesting here, and I want to pick up on this importantly, because my verses are slightly different, so I don't want to get confused. Um, we have a numbering system that's slightly different on Psalms, but if you notice the prepositions, we have an in and a to and an in. Okay, this is in the midst of a lament. What I spoke about before is our, our almost inherent need to remove ourselves and leave the lament. If you notice, in the midst of this lament, it's two. Mm -hmm. It's in. How often in life are we not to, but fro? Mm -hmm. How often are we out instead of in? Mm. The difficulty of lament is that it doesn't draw us in and it doesn't draw us to. It keeps us almost at bay mm. from the source of comfort for mm. that lament. Mm. And the idea of praise, we call our book of Psalms. Psalms is not Hebrew. Well, obviously it's English. Yeah. That was, uh, can I get an amen to that? That was a brilliant statement. Yeah, it's well done. Psalms is well English. Okay? That's what you need me for. The word Psalms is not a Hebrew word. It is a Greek word, psalmoi, which means psalms plucked instrument. Um, in Hebrew, as Glenn said, it's the idea of praise. The rabbis called it Sefer Tehillim, which is the book of praises. And all you have to do is read probably a third or a, at least of the Psalms, and you find, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Praise the Lord. Right? Okay? David is drowning his couch with tears. Praise the Lord. Where is the praise? And what I would say to you, what I would say to you is this central book 
to all of our faiths and actually to the universe. The ideas contained in Psalms as praise will deepen your spiritual practice because it broadens your reference for praise. Yeah. Praise can be tears. Yes. Praise can be anger. Praise yes. can be doubt. Praise can yes. be frustration. Yes. Praise can be sacred distance. Mm -hmm. Don't focus on praise as only hallelujah. Yeah. Focus on the entirety in the Hebraic context yes. of praise, which is so broad and so engaging and so healing because it allows you the entire spectrum of your humanity. You are now a walking praise regardless of how you feel, whether it's in the darkest moment of your soul, in the greatest doubt, the, the most angry that you've ever been, it's right there and David gives us license to do so. Yeah, so good, so good. Let's look for a moment, just kind of an overview of the rest of this psalm, okay? So if you've got a physical Bible, you can kind of follow along. Even in your, in your digital Bibles, you can scroll and see. But verse 6 and 7, if we were just to sort of outline this and sort of track the movements of this uh, famous lament psalm, 6 through 7 is definitely much more of the lament. This is when he says, I'm like a worm. I'm not even a human the way I'm scorned. And then 8 through 10 is a little bit of hope. I mean, actually, he's quoting what they say to him to mock him. Oh, he's the one who trusted in God. But, but he turns that and says, yes, I am counting on the Lord. I've been, I've been counting on the Lord since birth, basically, right? So that's his little bit of an articulation of hope. And then verse 11 is his petition. He says, okay, so Lord, be not far from me. I already told you I feel forsaken by you, so be not far from me. And then 12 through 18 is even more lament. He says, I'm, I'm surrounded like by wild animals. I'm poured out like water. My heart, heart is like wax. It's melting up. I mean, he just, the, the imagery is so rich. Dogs encompass me and company of evildoers encircle me. I mean, he's just going on and on. And then finally in 19, he breaks out of that spiral a little bit and then starts to make another request. But you, O oh Lord, don't be far off. That's his repeated petition that he keeps coming back to. Don't be far off. I already told you I felt forsaken. Da, 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 da. Here's all the reasons why. Now don't be far off. Oh, I'm just feeling so terrible. Don't be far off. And he's spiraling all over the place. And then verse 22, it starts to break, move toward praise. And he starts to anticipate being in the congregation, being able to give thanks to God, being able to praise God. Now, when you look at this, this is not a formula for going through grief. These are not six steps to navigate suffering. That's not what, in fact, if you're paying attention to this flow, you're like, what flow? This isn't linear. This is erratic. This is the zigzag. And that's what I want to say to you. Grief and suffering doesn't navigate your life in a straight line. You think things are going so well, and then all of a sudden, oh my goodness, where did that come from? I'm spiraling. Oh, but there's a little bit of good news. I think I have hope. Oh my goodness, this is awful. This is the worst. Very often in pastoral moments when I'm talking with people before funerals, sometimes in the funeral sermon itself, I'll say, grief is going to come in, in waves. And it's going to come in unpredicted times, unpredicted moments. You're going to find yourself going up and down, back and forth. See, the journey from lament to hope is not a straight line. The journey from lament to hope is not a straight line. I, I, talk about this, Joe. I, I know you have a lot to say on this. Well, I want you to know you're blessed to have my friend and your pastor. I really want you to know that. I'm blessed to have you. <laughs> The book of Lamentations, again, it's not what we call it in Hebrew. Some of the rabbis do, again, but in Hebrew, the book of Lamentations is actually called How. There's no lament, but there's total lament. The word for how in Hebrew, we have a few words for how. This word is a lengthened form of the word how, as if it's calling out to the, from the soul mm. to God, saying, how? Mm. To mm. me, that's so much more expressive and primal than simply lamentation, mm. which comes from the Latin, ultimately from the Greek, and it has that idea of moaning and wailing. But lamentation, 
Lamentations is too formal, too complex. My response to grief and sorrow and lament is how. It's the cry of how, and again, this word is lengthened. There are two ways to write it. It's a lengthened word because your person, your being, your soul is being pulled, mm. lengthened, stretched because of your trauma, mm. like that spear. Different metaphors, but it, it's the same idea. Mm. And the book of Lamentations, Glenn was just speaking of this quote-unquote order. That's the absolute order. And if you look, what's fascinating in the book of Lamentations in Hebrew, not in English. Some are better. There's amazing translators. There are five chapters to the book of Lamentations. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 are all alphabetical. It means it starts from the A and goes to Z, or Aleph to Tav. What that's telling you is that there is order in the midst of your chaos and destruction. Mm -hmm. And when it's talking about destruction here in Lamentations, this isn't just I stubbed my toe, or the tooth fairy only gave me a nickel instead of a dime like it did to Glenn's kids, right? We're talking here the sacred destruction of Jewish holy life in the form of the temple and their holy city. And yet there's an order to it. But if you get to the fifth chapter, there's no order. It has all the letters, but they're jumbled. Because in life, very often, when we suffer, we seek to find an answer. We seek to find a pattern. We seek to comfort in the midst of lamentation. But the answer is sometimes there is no order and don't try to put Humpty Dumpty back together in the midst of my brokenness. Allow that brokenness to permeate my being. It's necessary and it's timely. Amen. But it's not the end. Yeah. Just don't short circuit, don't bypass. Yes. As noble as your motives are, I want to help you. Yeah. Yeah. You're not helping ultimately if you don't allow the lament to mm. pierce. Mm. If you don't allow them to stay in that quote unquote place, the other meaning of lament in Hebrew. Allow them to be in that place, be with them, cry with them, mm. mourn with them but allow them, and I'm speaking personally, it's not a pleasant thought, but it's a necessary thought, as we'll see later when we get to the dimension of hope. Just don't short-circuit the sorrow to get to the hope, right. because then your hope will not be rooted, rooted. Yeah. won't be. Talk about that, Joe. You mentioned this morning a third kind of dimension etymologically related to this word for lament that gives us the sense of God's... Okay. Nearness. So in, in the first part of our discussion, Glenn spoke of the place of hope. The place of hope in lament. I'm sorry, the place of hope in Judea. The place of lament Thank in Judea. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it's it. It's okay, here. yeah. <laughs> Speaking in tongues. <laughs> tongue-tied. I'm tongue-tied, I meant. Tongue-tied. Yikes. This is later. Here come later. Yeah, anybody watch NCIS? You know when yeah. Gibbs? You can. <laughs> the place of Laments lament in Judaism. in Judaism. The truth is, the word for place in Hebrew is a simple word just like it is in English. We are in a place. But it also, according to the rabbis for centuries, it is one of the names of God. And the reason is, the brilliance of this idea is, whatever place we find ourselves in, mm. since it also means God, God is in that place. Mm. Very often, as Jacob said, and I didn't know it, fine. But the idea of place and God being, etymologically, or at least rabbinically, the same concept is a theology that we can all relate to because very often in that dark place we don't see God. So God is in that place, especially that place of lament. Mm. And that is our hope. This is where the hope begins yeah. to connect. Yeah. Because that word for hope, without hope, we're lost. And the Hebrew, again, is so rich with that word for hope. The word for hope in Hebrew is related to the word, well, it is the word, for accord. Okay, in Joshua 2, with Rahab, how do you say it in English? Rahab, Rahab? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Rahab. It's a cord. 
It's the same word as hope because that's all you have when you've lost everything. The hope is the one thing that you can hold on to, even though everything else is lost. So the hope is that, and the knowledge is that God is with you in this place. But there's another meaning. There's another meaning to this word for lament. There's hope and lament. The way he phrased it is brilliant. Okay? He speaks of the place of lament, and God is in that place of lament with you. The same word. But he also spoke of the hope of lament. How can lament give me hope? I'll give you two things. Something I didn't say before. One other word that is etymologically related to this word for lament is a nest. Where do birds, mother birds, keep their vulnerable? In their nest. Even though you're in that state of lament, don't think that you're forsaken, like the beginning of the psalm says. You feel lost, you feel empty, you feel alone. But that nest, that lament is also a nest where God's protective wings mm. are covering you. Mm. And it's related to one more thing, one more word. It's related, everybody knows, I don't know how you say it in English, Tubalcane, Tubalcane, the, the, the metal, metal mm -hmm. one who forged metal. Yep. Okay. Tubal. It's to forge, he's a metal worker. It's to forge is this idea behind the word lament. So lament breaks us down. It stabs us like a spear. Okay, it's a place of misery. It's a place. But it's also a nest where we do find protection and redemption. But it is also, it is also an opportunity for us to forge. It is related to the word for Tubalcain, Tubalcain, who is a metal worker. This suffering and this lament, this piercing, piercing spear, is an opportunity for us to forge a life and a community and a relationship with the divine that we wouldn't be able to do without that lament. So when you short-circuit your lament, yeah. you're not allowing yourself to create or form a holy dimension of life mm. that is necessary, as unfortunate as it is, Joe, as, you, as we wrap up this time with, together with you and me, I, w I want you to, um, uh, to pray something for us. Uh, you shared with me when we were having coffee a couple weeks ago that actually in, in your community at a funeral, they don't pray Psalm 22, which you might think would be the one to pray at a funeral, but you actually pray Psalm 23. And you explained a little bit about that. I, I want you to, to pray that um, in Hebrew, chant that, and talk to us about what it means. Okay. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. And here's one more great insight. Psalm 23 comes after Psalm 22. One <laughs> psalm after. Well, it's well done. Take notes. It's well done. It's brilliant. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous psalms, and it's one of the most profound. Why we sing that psalm, which isn't a psalm of mourning, at a funeral? I'll give you one reason, and then I'll chant part of it in a melody that is meant to convey the mourning of the soul for the loss of our beloved soul, but also keep that cord of hope attached to our hearts mm. and reaching mm. up to the divine. Mm. The word for shepherd in Hebrew is a ro'eh. It's also the word for a friend. And what this teaches me, at least, is that when I say the, at a funeral, the Lord is my shepherd, it's also echoing in my heart that the Lord is my friend. And when I have a person that I love who is gone, I need that guidance of a shepherd. And I also need the guidance and the love yeah. of a friend. Yeah. Because I can't make it without both. Mm. I don't just need guidance. I need a friend. Mm. I can get G what's that? Uh, GPS. GPS, yeah. thank yeah. you. GPS can take me somewhere, but I need a friend who loves me to guide me in this place when I am lost because of my loss. 
So I'll chant a few verses. Let me hold that for you. While you grab that. And tell us a bit about what this is, Joe, and when you wear it. And We, we wear this during our morning prayers. It's called a talis or a talit. The rabbis have verses throughout the psalm, Psalm 104, which speaks of being clothed in light. In Psalm 36, it speaks of being in the, the wings of God or under the wings of God. We view, this is an insight into the rabbinic mind about prayer. And this is a community that prays. You may not wear this, but take the idea of this in your prayer. When we pray in the morning, and I put this over my head, I am saying that prayer is to be in the wings of God. Mm. I am soaring with the divine. Mm. And God has me in his protective wings. Mm. And what else is prayer other than being in the presence, the protective yes, presence, yes and loving wings or arms of the divine. But this is also something that we wear when we die. I am wrapped in this when I die. Now, the key here is that this again is the hope and the philosophy that in death I am still wrapped in the wings of the divine and I am going to soar eventually and meet that great shepherd in the sky. So it's for the community to view, to give that hope that the wings are not gone, mm. that the protective wings of the divine are still there even though the presence of your loved one is no longer there. So I'll chant a few verses of the psalm with occasional translations just to give you a sense of where we're at. Mizmor Ledawawavit Adainaira Yela Yaksa Abiyena is Deshe Yar Bitaini Almaymene Haitiana Haleni Nafshi Yeshai Vave, he restores my soul. Yavaman reini v'maglei tzedek l'man shemai Gam g'yelech, even though I walk b'gei talmoves Through the valley of the shadow of death, lava yirara I will not fear any evil because you are always with me. Last part that I sang spoke of the comfort that is there even when the rod is present. The psalm ends with being present with the Lord in the house of the Lord forever. It's a psalm of hope. It's a psalm of bravery. It's a psalm of praise in the midst of our lament. And that is the path and the practice that we must all follow. I thank you so much, Glenn, my friend, my pastor for having me. I thank you, my new friends, for your attention, for your presence, and mostly for your reverence. And my prayer is that we all walk with the shepherd, that we pray with the shepherd, that we breathe with, and that we breathe in the shepherd. My prayer is that we allow, and this is crucial, we allow the shepherd to be with us because very often the presence of the shepherd is absent because we don't allow the great shepherd above to dwell within our hearts. So my prayer is that we all open our hearts to that great shepherd, to that great friend, 
The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my friend. I lack nothing. Shalom. Well, thank you, Joe. <laughs> thank you, Joe. When you look at Psalm 22 and you set it aside, right side by side with Mark 15, this can be your homework assignment this afternoon, but you start to see verse by verse, almost play by play, this unfolding in the crucifixion of Jesus, verse by verse. And you, if you know how difficult it is to speak when you're being crucified, maybe you've read about the excruciating pain, the way the lungs are collapsing, each word, each breath is labored, and that's putting it mildly. And so when Jesus gets out of his lips, the opening line of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wants us to have in mind the whole of the psalm. And when you think of it, you, you, you set it side by side, Mark 15 and Psalm 22, look at the parallels, it's there. And so sometimes Christians have said, aha, Psalm 22 is, is prophecy, it's prophesying Jesus. I, I don't think it's prophecy. What it is, is the Psalm 22 says to us what the suffering of Israel was going to be like. And it says to us what the suffering of the whole human race is like. And then when Jesus arrives on the scene as the seed of Abraham and the representative of Israel, the son of David and the son of man, the son of Adam, Jesus arrives on the scene and says, this story is my story. And in praying Psalm 22, Jesus is taking up in himself the entirety of human experience. And so I won't go verse by verse through the psalm, but if you skip to the end there, it says, Jesus took on himself the suffering of humanity so that in our own suffering, we're never alone and never abandoned. Sometimes we think about why the cross? Why did it have to be crucifixion? I mean, couldn't it have been something else? Why not just execution? Could, would, some, would a quicker, more expedient way of, of killing have worked? But you see, the cross is significant because of the way it speaks to us of the utter suffering, the lowest shame. That verse in the psalm that made us squirm when the psalmist says, I'm a worm, not a human. If you beheld Jesus on the cross, beaten, bloodied, naked, you'd say, that's not a human. That's someone being treated like a worm, something less than the image-bearing human being. And Jesus suffers the cross to say to you that in your lowest shame, the most degrading thing that you've ever experienced in your life, even that Jesus has experienced too. And in your worst pain, and in the place of saying, I can't imagine suffering worse than this, Jesus is saying, and I have been there too. Years ago, PBS did a documentary called The Christians, and the narrator, trying to be you know, sort of neutral and impartial, opens by saying, Christianity is the only major religion of the world to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. Think about that. The only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. And we might add one other word, the willing suffering and degradation that the God who sits on high the God to whom the psalmist prays in Psalm 22 is the God who sent Jesus is this is the God who came and died and so all of a sudden we're not seeing two different pictures we're not seeing oh that's nice Psalm 22 and then there's this Jesus thing and maybe that was kind of a weird prophecy thing no it's saying look the God that the psalmist began to glimpse is the God revealed in Jesus Christ who comes to do this. And sometimes we say, when we say this, oh, you know, maybe um, did, did, was Jesus actually abandoned and forsaken? We can't say things like that because it splits up the Trinity, right? And in fact, actually, the gospel, Paul will say later in one of his letters that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That the Father and the Son do not act independently of one another. That this was the work of God. 
This is God. And so Jesus is living out the human end of this story while also displaying the divine end of the story. That God is both the faithful God who is present and the suffering human. And somehow together in the cross they meet. I think what is amazing to me is that Jesus prayed faithfully to a God whom he could no longer perceive. The point is not that Jesus actually was abandoned. We, we don't believe that. But the point is that he felt in his bones abandoned and yet kept praying. And so our exhortation this morning is when you feel in your bones that you have been forsaken, even there know that you are not. That God is there. Christ himself has been there on that cross with shame, with suffering, with humiliation. Keep praying. Keep praying. In Jesus, the crucified and risen one is where lament and hope meet. When we say this as Christians, we don't speak of hope as wishful thinking. We don't speak of hope. Sometimes in English, the word hope means a wish, something we hope for. I hope it's sunny tomorrow. Hope, in all of its fullness, is a, a surety, something that is given to us as grounds for belief. What is it? It's the resurrection. So in our laments, we have the crucified, and for our hope, we have the risen one. In our laments, we have Christ crucified, and for our hope, we have Christ the risen one. I was talking with my kids recently because they're going through something with a friend of theirs that is going through unspeakable suffering. And we were talking about this, Dad, why? How do we navigate? How do we know there's something beyond? Am I just saying nice things to say, oh, there's yeah, hope? And to say to them, girls, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was raised. In our suffering, we are not alone. And our suffering will not be our final destination. Resurrection has the last word over death. Resurrection has the last word over Here we are on the first Sunday of Lent, but Lent is not the sum total of the church calendar. Lent will break and give way to Easter. It's coming. And so as we get ready to come to the table this morning, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the crucified and risen one. Jesus, the one who sums up in himself the experience of Psalm 22. Jesus who prayed it faithfully when he could no longer perceive God. Jesus who is with us in our lowest suffering. Jesus, the risen one, who shows us our own destiny and future. I liked how Joe said, lament is a place. It's not the destination. It's not the end of the journey. You'll stop here. You might even nest here. But you're future is resurrection. Would you bow your heads this morning?